If you ever doubt that you're going to be able to get into analytics and make a difference because maybe your background isn't that or you feel like you don't have the expertise, I really think you should listen to today's guest. He is not a data scientist. He doesn't have a formal training you know, in biostatistics or programming or computer science. In fact, his story today that he's going to share is about being a middle school teacher and about his experience with his school system trying to implement a fancy, shiny data system and ways that it maybe didn't go quite as effectively as they would have hoped. And he was able to put on his program evaluation hat and say, what could we do to make this better? And so he's going to share three fundamental ways that we can be more successful when we use data. Whether you're talking about using data in big teams or using data you know, for yourself, how can we actually make sure that the systems we put in place are functional, worth the investment that we put in them, and get us the insight to really make difference? I loved this conversation. I learned so much, and I just felt that there's so much rich material in here, regardless of where you're coming from. I will say, however, um, I had gotten a new microphone, and I had tested it and set it up, and it was great. And I had a chance to, to join with um, Eric while he was at his office, and I turned my microphone around and recorded the whole thing somehow without realizing that my microphone was facing away from me instead of toward me. So uh, with the lovely help of some digital editing, I managed to increase the volume of my side of the conversation so that it is actually hearable, but it does mean that there's way more background noise um, than I would really like, so I apologize for that. It is not the quality this, that the incredible insight Eric shares with us deserves, but the conversation was so valuable that I still really wanted to share it with you. So I will be looking at new systems for recording, uh, but I hope you can bear with me for this one because there is just so much in it. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits everywhere. With me, your host, Alexandra Mannerings. I have a great guest joining us today with a wonderful story about trying to bring analytics and visualization tools into the education space. So I'm very excited to be able to introduce you to Eric Dutilly. So Eric, tell us a little about, about your background and where you came from and how you come to have a conversation with me about data. First, Alex, thanks so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here with you. And it's a pleasure to share my story with you. So thanks for having me. I'm from Wisconsin. So I originally came from there. My family is uh, Puerto Rican American on my mother's side and then French Canadian on my father's side. So that's where Dutilly comes from. Yeah, so I, I got most of my education back there all the way through early college where I did geography and Spanish. After that, I came out to the West and I got a master's in education and I thought I was going to teach, but I was recruited into the doctoral program where I got to look into a whole bunch of things that I thought were utterly fascinating, most of it being um, like psychology being the measurement of mind. I was really interested in like how, like the whole standardized test movement. I was like, how is it that people can measure intelligence? That was like such a fascinating thing for me. So I spent a lot of time studying that with a handful of professors at, at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I learned a ton about that whole world, which of course edged me into the world of data analytics and data visualizations because they model a lot of data. <laughs> I think it's one of the fun things, I mean, I'm an example of this and you're an example of this, that data science is really bringing people from such a diverse background. 
right? There's sort of the like quote unquote standard, I guess, where you could go to school and study some kind of data degree. But so many of us instead come from a very broad and diverse background, both educationally, culturally, all of it. And I think that that really adds to how we're able to put data really to work. Yeah, I think it's one of the unifying, people talk about the siloing of academia, but I think there's a couple like major unifying features. And one of them is the use of statistics. It's understandable in physics, it's understandable in mathematics and the behavioral sciences. And I think that's like, that should be held on to. I joke that data should be viewed as essential to an organization as HR, right? It just should underpin everything across all agencies, across all groups. Like it's just an essential use in everything rather than it being its own single silo of, of activity. So tell us a little bit about how you got brought into data visualization in, in education specifically. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it definitely started first kicking and screaming a little bit. As an academic, I uh, wasn't trained in how to do things through proper data visualization at all. So it's new to me. It's new to me because of the design element that seems to be really important to it. So I don't consider myself to be an advanced practitioner at all. I'm still learning a lot about the theory and the idea. But what I had, the conclusion I have come to based on maybe like the last year, year and a half is that one, it is important. Two, it is extremely useful. And three, it can bridge the gap from very complex data displays to like pretty rapid comprehension. That seems to be the ticket. And of course, there's like a little bit of like the candy treat along the way, which is that people prefer to look at graphics over data tables and Excel spreadsheets. So there's something to be said for that too. Um, but I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, of a, a little bit new to it, but um, I see the value and I'm very excited about, uh, about enhancing my skills here. When we talk about visual, data visualization, just for those who may be listening and not totally understand, what we're meaning is taking things that are numbers or counts or groups of things and displaying them in a way that is pictorial. Right? Whether it's a bar graph or a, a pie chart or some of the more exotic kinds of things like ribbon charts or sonke charts, there are ways of taking things that might be difficult to like look at the number 10 and the number 15 and immediately grasp how much bigger one is than the other, but instead displaying those visually so we can see it. And that's where you're saying that it bridges this gap where you can take some very complex numerical ideas and make them much quicker and easier to understand. And I love what you said, though, that you're learning this. Like, I think a lot of us are in this space of learning about data analytics. And it points out two things. This can be learned. Don't feel bad if you didn't like come out of the womb knowing it, right? None of us did. But also too, that there is best practices to learn. And I think that's one of the things that you're gonna share with us today that I'm very excited about is what we can learn from projects that work well and what we can learn from projects maybe didn't work so well about how to really be effective with using data analytics to drive change in education and, and many other places as well. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, something that's important to keep in mind is that there sometimes people can look at data science and data visualization as a very like technical practice, which I think is right. There's a lot to, there's a lot of different software to learn and how to translate huge data sets into like simple, beautiful graphs or somewhat complex graphs. But on the other hand, the, you have to think about, or what's important to think about is like, we're trying to accomplish human goals a lot of times. And that's not just all about knowing technical stuff. That only gets you part of the way. So I think um, what I'm going to talk about in a little bit here is just about how the technical and the social book get interweaved. And that's that's something that's um, really important to keep in mind because just because one thinks that they can analyze data or like show a data chart doesn't mean everybody's on board with that project. 100%. That's such an important thing to call out is that you are not just designing graphs, you're designing graphs for people, for a purpose. 
And so you have to make sure that your data graphs align with the purpose and support that purpose, but also speak to humans as humans, that we align with what we're interested in and how we like to process data and get this on board with the change that that whole thing is trying to accomplish. So let's get into your story. So tell about sort of your foray in, into to analytics in the education space. So a couple of years back, I was working as a middle school teacher in a district. And during my time there, they had launched two kind of data visualization initiatives. One was that they purchased, I think it's from Tableau, like a pretty large platform that visualized data. So it's quite beautiful with these like stunning charts. And the second one is that they had organized um, what they called their first teacher data cohort or something like that. And the two of them are going to become intertwined here for sure. But what I really want to focus on is the data visualization system, a little bit of its limitations and how it inched just a little bit closer towards or how it can be inched a little bit closer towards its ambitious goals of, of basically creating a data driven culture for decision making in, among teachers. So back then I wasn't a consultant, I was a teacher. So I had the opportunity to be a participant. So I watched it all from the inside. So I was like hired by the district, trained in the data visualization technique, then had to go teach. My job wasn't creating charts for anybody at all. In fact, that was something I hadn't really thought about transitioning into my um, uh, teaching practice, even though like as an academic, I, it was something that I knew a lot about, but I considered teaching to be slightly different in that way. But at first, like it was a little bit unclear to me, like what the data visualization platform was for. Like I, I, they trained me in it for a little bit and I just, but it wasn't like obvious to me what exactly as a teacher I was supposed to do with it. Like what was the function of it? And of course, as a first year teacher, I got super busy. So I got wrapped into the day to day. I believe I logged into it maybe once and it might've been just for the training. And I never really bothered to go back. And it was this teacher cohort, data cohort that really drew me back into even thinking about it, which happened I don't know, like four or five months after I'd started teaching. And it got me thinking about a couple of things. I was like, well, how many people even use this thing? What were they using it for? And did it really help them get anything done? Because as far as I could tell, I had been doing fine at my job without using it. So those were just a couple of critical questions that, I, that, that, that came to me at that time. As a member of this like data cohort, there's about 12 of us, I think that met every once in a while. I had a little bit of time assigned to me to look into these data visualization services to like learn a little bit more about what they were. And through my little bit of research, uh, it turns out that they are kind of like a technocratic movement at the national level, at least, that's trying to infuse data-driven decision-making into teaching practices. That's kind of what they are. Prior to having these like really beautiful data charts, what had teachers had been basically asked, I guess, to look at spreadsheets and tables. So the data visualization solves the problem of looking at spreadsheets. And as you can imagine, they had quite a hard time to, of making sense of these, like, these tables. So the visualizations then in theory would um, problem solve that kind of, uh, that, at least that one kind of problem, that one small obstacle. So as the data viz softwares become more, more popular and more common across the, the nation, what you get is these, like kind of like, I don't know, they, they buy these data visualization systems with the hope that these charts will become more digestible to practitioners and then they'll just be more likely to use them. Thus, voila, a data-driven decision-making barrier is lifted. And I love how you're setting this up because you bring up so many great points and insights already, just like kind of giving us the lay of the land. One is how important it is to bring in people who are on the front line, who are actually supposed to be using these new data tools 
in from the beginning, right? You got handed this tool from on high, right? Here it is. We built it for you. Use it. And you're like, and it wasn't a lot like that. You actually had the question, why? What am I supposed to do with this thing? And I think that that happens so often is, and we were just talking that data shouldn't be a silo, but oftentimes data teams are right? They're their own little group and they go off and they solve the thing that they think is the problem. And then they turn up and they're like, here you go, voila, solution done. And you sort of go, wait, hang on, like what problem were we solving in the first place? And, and you identified one that was probably a known problem, which is you're looking at a bunch of spreadsheets and don't necessarily know what to do with them or how to interpret them, or it takes a really long time. But addressing the, it's hard to read spreadsheets problem without saying, why were you reading the spreadsheets in the first place? Right. And addressing that problem and just making it easier to answer that problem kind of gets around it a little bit backwards. Like you said, they end up being a solution in search of a problem um, instead of really from the beginning being engineered, working with frontline people who are busy and already have a full time job doing something else and saying, how do we help you do your job better and easier and quicker while being fueled and inspired by data instead of just like, here's one more thing for you to do. And those three questions that you listed out about your question, like that you said, what's actually going on with this tool, right? Like who's actually using it and how much are they using it? What are they even using it for? Those are critical questions I think to ask before you even design something, right? How often do we expect them to use it? Who do we expect to use it? What do we expect them to use it for? And then track that. Like, did you achieve what you were intending? I think that is those, those insights for people getting started trying to think about bringing data into you know what they want is so critical and having a data-driven culture that is that's a great goal we want to get there but there's a lot more than just buying tableau there's a lot more to the story than just that that is that is for sure and yeah so so here i am in the middle of this situation where i'm allowed i'm given a moment to like think about it a little more critically and of course up to that point i hadn't really logged in because most of the data that i had been using and i imagine most teachers are like this is like, you know, they're like nice looking two-dimensional like workbooks that you work through that you, you like put how many if a student's missing assignments or what their grade is and it kind of tallies it for you. I mean, the teachers, they work in a two-dimensional spreadsheet world for sure, whether they recognize it or not, but that's what those grading books are. And then they have their kind of like output dependent variable, which is the grade, you know, they get 70%, 80%, 90% based on the weighted averages according to like whatever groups they set up. So there's all this stuff that goes on that they're kind of in any way. So they're inputting these things. But that stuff isn't always the stuff that's data that's visualized. <laughs> that is what I spent most of my time inputting data in it, but none of that was visualized. So that was kind of a curious thing. So Tableau was like, that's why it sort of probably strikes people as strange when they look at it as a teacher, because they think to themselves, where did this data come from? What am I supposed to do with it? Is this data describing a problem that I have or is this somebody else's problem? Because it seems like data that I didn't collect. I, didn't collect. I, didn't, I don't know where it came from. I can't identify any of the students I work with or the classes in it because it's like aggregated up. Anyway, this, so I'm looking at this data and um, fortunately I have a program evaluation background and at the time I had as well. So I kind of approached my time in the data cohort as like a time to like really sort of look at you and be like, okay, what is sort of at root? What's going on with this data visualization thing? So I asked the district people what data they had collected uh, on the on the use of the data system, and I learned that it wasn't it wasn't much. 
they had a few that they had like clung to a few different promotional statistics, such as 75% of the district members had like logged in. It was a little higher for high, uh, a little higher for, I think, elementary and middle school, a little lower for high school because they just, I guess, were doing their own thing. And most people had like hired that had done it had logged in maybe once or twice like me. And then I realized, well, if you count that mandatory training as one login, then you kind of get the picture that the statistic might be a little deceptive there. And on and on it went. I had just very little information about what was going on there, who was using the system, and for how long they logged in, and how often they logged in, why they logged in, if they did anything with the data. And I decided to dedicate my project to basically developing a survey for them so that they could do some of this background research, so they can collect a little bit of data on these systems so that they could use it. <clears throat> because uh, in the school I worked at, we were not even at a, at a school level using Tableau to do anything. So I was just a little shocked that a system that looked very expensive and quite beautiful wasn't being used and that there's really no data to support that it was being used. So that for me was where like the problem space began to emerge and where like I began to do a little bit of research into what teachers and uh, districts can largely it would be like district admin basically like what they can do to create this like uh, data-driven decision-making culture within schools but that's kind of the setup you have this data system that are being bought all over the place teachers I think are maybe looking at it a little bit there might be a few that do use it um, they solve a problem, a very specific, important problem, which is moving from charts and tables to, or I'm sorry, moving from like data tables to charts, which I think are helpful. They can be helpful. But um, I do think that um, they're still running into problems of, of low use within schools. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons why. This idea of, well, does this data address my problem or someone else's problem? I loved that because, again, it goes back to that the people using the data are often different people than those who are collecting it and even than those who are analyzing it, right? So you get served up something and if they haven't done this deep work with the front end users from the very beginning, it is really easy to sort of even accidentally swap out right, the problems that you're working on for the problems that the front at your front line, the, the end users are, are going to be focused on or just a misunderstanding or they didn't even bother to ask. They just assumed, right? Sometimes that happens where we go, well, everyone knows that standardized tests are the big problems, but if that's not maybe necessarily what you're working in with your class, or you know, they, they say, well, we're not gonna focus on standardized, the district says we're doing this, and yet at the classroom level, it's different. So really trying to do that work up front to say, what are your problems that you're trying to solve? Like, I think that that is just critical. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, those are great insights. Yeah, and, um, I think also the, the point that you brought up about being unclear where the data was coming from. That happens so often. And I've heard said, I, I don't know who the source of this quote is, that data moves at the speed of trust. <laughs> That's great. And so you can have these super fancy slick dashboards, but if everyone looks at them and goes, yeah, but what's oh, yeah. behind that? What's inside the black box that's behind the curtain? And you haven't done a good job explaining the source of the data, explaining why it's trustworthy, even if you answered their questions, even if you did all the work to make sure you were addressing their problems. I think that's right. There's a whole host of skills that go into this. And the more and more like basically offloading of these skills that happens to like, you know, moving from a chart from a data table to a chart, that's helpful, but somebody else is doing it for sure. And they're trying to speed up some process. But that isn't where the problem sort of like ends or not the problem, but like where the tricky business ends, but you're also asking people to do data analysis. And that took me 
six years of training in at an at a PhD level to like get it. And I don't know how happy my you know statistics teachers always would have been about how I did at it with their training and their guidance and reading articles and having all the time in the world to worry about a silly little simple data set. Um, and then we just ask people who are trained in something else who may even be humanity-centered individuals to and start doing data analysis. And you're kind of like, well, it's, it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's gonna lead up to it. Now, that being said, there are a bunch of solutions that have come out of the research that do point in a positive, optimistic direction towards making these systems more usable. I, th I think I've said this before and I've heard other people say it, we're wired for language. So we pretty much just have to be exposed to language and we can pick up how to talk. And you know, if someone helps you learn how to read, then once you got it, you can run with it. But we're not wired for numbers. We're not wired to just naturally understand complex statistics and data visualizations. And you bring up such a critical point that this is something that has to be intentionally taught and time has to be dedicated and set aside to say this is the skill that matters. This is a skill that you may not have necessarily been exposed to before if you focused, you know, like you studied history and, you know, you didn't do quantitative analysis. This is going to be a new place for you. And it's a skill that we believe in. And so therefore, we're going to invest in you and in, in your skills in that. So that's a really good point of, of being patient enough to make sure you develop the human skills right alongside developing the technical solution to actually present the, that data analysis. Because just seeing a graph doesn't magically give you the answer. You do have to interpret that graph, even if you aren't the one calculating it. You got it. And that is exactly what I'm going to talk about here in a second, a little bit about how those two systems have to go along with each other. Yeah. So what were some of the lessons you learned? What does the research say about how we can do a better job with this? Good. I want to look at what I, what I think are three possible, like, I don't know, like, I guess they're not exactly solutions per se, but they're like three steps in the right direction or three different like domains of practice that you could work in that I think could really help. So the first one is, is a new one for me. And I, I don't think I would have answered this question this way or thought about this if we had spoken maybe like a year ago. <laughs> but I think that, so in the, within that framework of the move from like no data <laughs> to then at least having data tables to then having Tableau, which is quite, I mean, there's like I get, like I said, they're like stunning charts. I think the one thing that gets left out because um, depending on what type of data system they're purchasing, they're not like intelligent data systems. They're still like just like running a table that more or less matches the data. So you're getting like you know, these huge bar graphs or these like wandering line graphs. So I think solution one is applying data visualization principles to whatever it is that's important. Now, what exactly is the difference between like crunching, like cranking out tables and data visualization? Well, I think that has answered mostly by the designers. You're like running at a point, you're looking at some purpose or function, some insight that the graph has in it that you want to do work on or think about or analyze. That like major finding or thing of interest is what the data visualization pulls out. So it's not just cranking out a pie graph. That's like, that's like some people think that that's it. But again, that's sort of kind of the low level of it all. The bigger level is saying like, what are we looking at? Are we really looking at among these like seven different like classes? Are we worried about PE standardized test scores? Are we worried about a decline in math scores? If so, and that chart is shown, it'd be really nice if that particular line was shown and you can kind of get a little bit more detail and nuance and compare it, say, to how the English test scores are going. That I think would be extremely helpful. And I think what that does is it 
does the same, it solves the same problem. Like a, the analogy would be like in a chart, in a table, I'm sorry, you get confused because there's a lot going on. Uh, data chart from Tableau, like a huge chart, doesn't always help you necessarily to focus on what it is that's important. So you're still wandering around inside of this chart with your eyes. The data visualization practice is what's really gonna bring your eye to something that you need to focus on to reduce kind of like the eyeball chatter so that everybody's kind of like, okay, I know what we're looking at. I know what we're focused on. We're concerned that every year that happened that you know for the last five years, our math standardized test scores have gone down and we don't know why it is, but that's what we're working on. So I think that would be like the next step that a number of these districts could take, not just spewing out data that looks all right, but ultimately at the end of the day, doing some sort of like analysis to be like, hey, this is the thing that this chart was built to show us about and we're gonna really highlight that. So I'd say that would be a really, really cool step for, for districts to do. You're so right that going from a table with 50 rows to a line chart with 50 lines does not just by itself make it easier to understand. Difficult to have a computer be able to make those decisions because a computer is not going to know what is it that actually matters to you. You know, computers can help and suggest like looking at your data, I think a line chart might be better than a pie graph, but if what you're trying to understand is proportions, then a pie chart is going to be better. Coloring it, the choice of how you color your lines is going to call out certain lines and hide other lines. Or if you make no choice at all and you just use the default coloring, it's going to be one big Jackson Pollock <laughs> splat of color that is very difficult to discern anything. I remember doing um, an analysis where I was comparing Colorado against other all the other 50 states and then the national average. And so you, you do, you have 50 lines across a, bar, across a line graph and we're trying to trend it and showing how Colorado is moving against that average trend in the other states. So what we did is we made Colorado a very bright color and all the other states shades of gray. Actually really matter comparing against any one given chart you know, line. You didn't have to know where Arizona was. You just wanted to see how Colorado was moving against this background of the other states. But if that wasn't what we wanted to show, if we wanted to compare it to particular other states, we would have made different choices for those line colors. And a computer is not going to naturally automatically make those choices. So you have to have someone who knows those design principles and takes those steps to say, what is the question we are trying to answer with this visualization? You have to have, that's, I think that's what motivates the entire, the entire situation. If you just flash data up on there, people will... They'll do the best they can, but in a 30-minute meeting with people who aren't necessarily trained data analysts, I just, it, it's not that it's lost time, it's just that it's, it can be really unfocused, and it can turn into lost time. It can be very confusing, too. Different groups can be talking about different parts of the graph, and and I guess that's fine if that's what you want. You just want to have people, like, freewheeling it, but again, I don't really think that's the point of these, like, either district or school-wide meetings. I think there there is a problem there, and they just, like, either pretend that there isn't or aren't skilled enough to just show it in the data in a way that's becomes relatively obvious to people. Because it is at the end of the day about helping students to like, you know, become better at math because it's just going to hurt them in the long run. If they're bad at math in seventh grade, how are they going to get better in eighth grade? And so you want to like look at that. And that's a thing that you want to worry about. If your school has a weakness there, it's important to point out and figure out what you can do about it. That's what it's all about. Exactly. It's not just data for data's sake. It is data to help us do our jobs better and help us accomplish the reason that our organizations exist, right? If you are a school, you exist to educate your children and help them succeed. So you need to be measuring how well are you educating them and how well are they succeeding and calling out where students are falling behind or those gaps in a really clear way that everyone can see it and see the problem and agree on the problem and leave that time open to then discuss 
what the solution is going to be since the data has called out what the problem is. That's that's that would be better than what I saw. It's a dream. You're hired. We, we You're hired. <laughs> a, a girl can hope, right? You can definitely hope and do. That would be fantastic. Yeah. All right. So that's, I think, a great <laughs> first principle. And, and you're right. It's not a solution. It's not, you know, pat, pat, done. But that's a really, really important step is to think about not just making visualizations, but making visualizations leveraging good design principles that help answer the original why for the data in the first place. Yep. And I think that's good. And I think that activity means that there's a hand. Once they do that, well, that means there's a handful of people that are already on the same page because they would produce a graph in order to do that with the proper visualization. That means they've answered the question, like, what is it, the trend here that, that we're concerned about? And they're not showing that graph for no reason. So they're worried about something. I'll tell you that right now. Right. They are just throwing data up for fun that there is a reason for it. And so let's make it easy to understand the insight that's the behind that chart. That's number two. So one, yep, is data. So data is principles. The second one is going to be, um, and this is like a little bit back into my my academic world, but I'm I'm very much like I think about motivation. So I like to I like to say that the second one is the motivational factor. A lot of these systems, these data systems, aren't designed to really help teachers with their problems or practice. They just don't operate at that level. The problems and the data they visualize are oftentimes somebody else's problem because teachers aren't buying these systems. I can tell you that right now. There's no salary that I was aware of in the school district that could afford or even on a payment plan to pay for tablet for an entire district. So whose problem is it? Sometimes it's the principal's problem. Like they're catching heat from the district because they're just, they have, you know, slow math scores or something like this. Sometimes it is the district's problem. So the state is looking at them and, and sending them emails and giving them warning letters about something or another. And some of these things are quite serious. They're about like enrollment, you know, is your enrollment dropping or is your test score about to hit the critical level where your school is going to be pulled into an intervention plan? And now that's on your resume as a principal. I, I think in the background is why that's why $500,000 or $300,000 gets spent on these systems because they're really not designed for a teacher. So I think to go back to the motivational factor, I think the motivation for these data systems isn't aligned all the time with teacher practices. Also, teachers sometimes have very little contact with and sympathy for test scores. So there's like a political contentious thing there as well. And that's a lot of times the data that's modeled in these, in these systems. These data don't rule the teacher's lives from time to time, from day to day. That's just not, the, they're just interested in, did they hand the assignment in? Like, is their grade going up or down? That's the kind of stuff that teachers worry a little bit more about. Not necessarily last year's English test score on the grammar section. Like, they might be a little bit interested in that, but they, they're they not terribly, like, they're not real motivated or bent out of shape over that stuff. Maybe something more like, is there fundamental work that would help a student? Like, that's more, it's more like local, I would say, for teachers. They're more interested in, like, hey, I, I have a student in my class who needs help or, like, two or three or half the kids didn't do well in this math test. What can I do about that? Not how can I shift, increase the school's score 3%. People might feel real hopeless about those problems because they just don't know what to do about them. Like you can analyze that data to death, but it just seems like it's somebody else's problem. Like someone else should be worrying about that. What can we do? I think that um, one thing that's important to do here is that, that is that these systems we purchased, if they are indeed to supposed to be changing like teachers' behaviors towards data visualization practices, which I'm arguing it doesn't seem that that's exactly what they're buying them for. But if that is really what they're up to here, um, I think that you can try and orient the motivation to be a little bit more from the teacher's perspective. 
this won't be easy if the actual research question that they're worried about or the actual problem is like a district level problem or whatever it is. That's going to be a little bit of a tricky business. But I think at the very, very minimum, what you can do is you can like wield like inquiry or research questions in a way where um, you can like basically ask teachers like, hey, like what's going on here? Like what is happening within these data systems? Like we're going to show you a graph about uh, increasing and decreasing reading compared to math systems. Like what's your prediction? What do you guys think is happening? How do you think we rank compared to um, our neighborhood schools? What about the, the charter school down the street? How do you think we're doing compared to them? And I think that can kind of ground a little bit of the beginning inquiry and motivation into these into these systems a little bit better, because a lot of the data they're going to model is going to be a little it's going to be a little outside of the reach of teachers because it gets aggregated up like it'll be like the whole school's math score or something like that. And that's like, you know, several teachers that contribute to that and a whole bunch of students and things like that. So I think if they can, and it, there's like, I don't know what these massive these massive data systems can do about this. But in my mind, I do think very heavily about starting from a motivational perspective from the teacher's point of practice. If there's a pain point that they are feeling that you think can be solved with data, my guess is that's probably someplace where you guys can at least have a point of agreement. These large data systems that are looking at year old, stale, standardized test scores, that's a tough, that's a real tough motivational sell. I think you can get a toehold in with these data visualization projects, but I do think it needs to be, it needs to lean towards the teachers a lot more than they typically do right now. And it's possible to build data systems where you actually look at different data depending on the level of the organization. Whether it's Tableau, whether it's anything else, you can permission it to allow different levels of insight and granularity, right? Where the highest people are only looking at the rollups you know, the frontline people might be looking at, at an aggregate for the roll-up and then their specific breakout of, of information, right? So they're looking at their students and they can see their individual students, which suddenly makes this a lot more relevant for them. And then they can see how their students roll up and support this like aggregated general view of the school. And it is very disheartening if you're the frontline worker and you're like, I can control my class. Or, you know, if you're a nonprofit, I get my program. And then someone puts something in front of you that's like the whole system stinks. And you're like, well, what do I do about that? <laughs> and, and if you're if the levers that you have to pull are I'm going to help my students do better on a math quiz tomorrow, you might not necessarily see if something's just showing you that big picture, how helping them do better on that math score is going to then advance this bigger cause that you're shooting for. But if you intelligently design those and you break those into the levels, like you said, if you ask the question, that is going to interest them, going to help them make a more impactful choice tomorrow, then you're gonna to start to get local action. I love that word that you said, local data. Yeah, how do you find that local data that informs the action that someone can take that will affect that big rolled up aggregate goal? Yeah, and there's an important implication here too for an important point here that I think that this is like something that's classic in education. There's this distinction between like, like an authentic open inquiry and a closed shut inquiry. Like the answer is known is like the major, like, so if the answer is unknown, like if you're like, oh, like I don't really know how fast our seedlings are gonna grow. That's what you're doing in biology. Kids are like, you could be a little bit more interested because there isn't an answer. But with some of these data systems and sometimes how they're presented to teachers, it actually seems like 
if the teachers don't get to that point that the principal, like the pain that the principal is feeling, like, hey, you guys don't see that our math score is going down, that's a problem, then like the then like there's just no discussion to be had because the teachers can see right through it. It isn't an open inquiry into data in like that kind of way. What it is is like just pointing out a pain point that the principal of the district is feeling and just putting it in the face of the teachers who may already have a sense of the problem and just saying, look, this is the problem. And the teachers are like, like, is it my, is it me? Like, do I, like, how do I, what do I even do about this? So that's, a, that's a thing too. So in terms of authenticity of like data analysis practices in schools, that's really important as well. You want to have, I think, an open-ended inquiry because you want people to be able to contribute. If it's about, yes, you got it right. No, you got it wrong. Like kids don't like that inquiry either. They get frustrated with that kind of stuff. And adults are, can see through it even faster. And I hear this, one of the big resistances to bringing in data, especially you know, in nonprofits, but everywhere, is, well, are you just going to use it as a gotcha? You're going to just use it to micromanage me. You're going to use it to tell me that I'm bad. And that's a great point, that when it's a closed inquiry, when the answer's already known and data's used as basically point out, like, yes, you're bad, it doesn't actually really help anybody. But when data can be used as an open inquiry saying, all right, we all do agree that there's a problem, but we're not going to use data to bash people on the head with use data to say, what are possible solutions to that? And it also ties back to what you were saying about asking the right questions that you need data that doesn't just show, okay, test scores are going down or you know we're, we're not doing as well in math as against our peers, but then you need to be able to provide data that can inform what kind of action might be better to take, right? Whether it's highlighting particular groups of students that are struggling and might benefit from an additional program or whether it's, you know, what, whatever you can get down to that level where suddenly it goes from just being you're wrong to a place to explore possible solutions. That's where you're going to make a data-driven difference. And I think that's what the data helps with. It helps you weed through like a lot of complex situations. You come up with a hypothesis, an idea about something, and you can look at data and be like, oh, actually, it isn't attendance. I thought it was attendance. I thought my kids weren't coming to school, but I just had a misconception. And that harkens back to every once in a while, you get these nuggets in the academic world, like these real, real juicy nuggets. And one of them I remember from, uh, I think his last name was Kronbach. He is a pretty famous guy in education statistics. And he said that like one of the points of using like in our language, like data-driven, whatever it's like data inquiry is to counteract and to counterweight the perspective, like the day-to-day -day perspective of the teacher. So they may arrive at a conclusion that may or may not be good or right about students. And you can use data to be like, hey, did you know that this student actually on average does really well on your math test, even though you have this idea that they're not good at math? That is sort of the thing. And then if the teacher's nice and they're open-minded a little bit, they can then be like, oh, I wonder if I had the wrong idea about the student. And that's kind of like a really rich way where you can change somebody's mind about an opinion that they have about a student through data. That's cool stuff, but that's what data could like do. It can do that for all of us, not just teachers. I think you may have gotten this a little off or, or your, your very close perspective might be true of that one thing you're looking at, but you're missing this bigger picture. Or this one event stood out stronger to you because we're human and it's colored your perception of all the other events or all of the other things that happened. So data does do a really good job of, 
of saying, wait, hang on, we've got all of these data points, let's put them together and treat them equally rather than the one that, that stands out. Data visualization principles, big deal. And then locating the motivation, I would say inside whatever, at whatever level the decisions are supposed to be made and to, to make people feel like they're involved and have some ownership over the over the decision-making space. Otherwise, no one cares about the <laughs> data input, whatever it is, they just don't, they're not as motivated. The last one is gonna be, it's gonna be similar to that motivational one, but this is one that the research has um, pointed out that I think I find really compelling. And it's simultaneously investing, not only in the technical systems, but in the human systems. So just as Tableau did not maybe exist 20, 30 years ago, I don't know when this thing started, but like it didn't exist at some point and now it exists. That system was created, invested in, people worked on it, and now there it is. <laughs> people tend to spend a little bit less time on a similar level of investment within the human systems within, of course, the example we're using is schools, but this would be all over the place. What I think about here is like, how do you make like the data analysis processes, like how do you make them more successful? That's really like the question at the heart here. So there's a couple of cues, I think. First, there's the important, it should be a social practice. I think that's important. You don't really want too many people all by themselves isolated working on it because while some people like myself might be like more inclined towards it because I'm less afraid of data than, than the average bear, but some people won't do it. So having something to be social is important, like a shared practice among people that, that, are, that are after, that's, that's an important thing. Um, working across departments is usually wise. So like you can think about it like whatever sixth graders are on average suffering from is going to be the inheritance of the seventh grade teacher. So they can look at data that's flagging the sixth graders. Then they can maybe do something about it, which would be great for the seventh grader because or the seventh grade teacher, because they will ultimately have those same students. So there's there's obvious areas of, I think, working together within schools um, where, where you could set up these like sort of like data teams basically to look at. The next thing is that research has kind of shown that these systems can take a little while to set up. So this is where like, like the professional development training thing is a real problem. So if you think back to the example I gave you, I was given like a login, clicked on something, looked at Tableau and I was like, all right. And then like, that, that was it. I didn't, I didn't even remember my login after that. That's intense. Like that is exactly what you do not want to happen. You spend like $350,000 a year on this system. But then on the other hand, you, I don't know where I got that number from, but however much it costs. And then you don't spend any time at all, like training people how to use this thing sort of make sense of them. That's, that is not good. You do not want that to happen. So what will happen is people won't use them. They just won't have a developed a habit of using this, especially if they don't, they don't really like resonate with it right off the gate. They don't get the purpose of it. So these designing these like human systems like could take a while like it can take months maybe half a year before people are used to it because they got to work through issues like i don't want to do data i'm afraid of data there's all these things that people are working through i'm confused i hate my principal all this stuff that they're like worried about you have to like burn off some of that psychic energy as you go through it and all of these things so, like one one crazy thing about the literature that i didn't i didn't expect at all i was like you can people will just change their mind the longer they're doing it. Like suddenly like realize that data is amazing. It's like, oh, like on Wednesdays, we get together and we analyze like the quarterly student data. And I like having a cup of coffee and having a bagel and talking with my colleagues about it. I didn't like it at first, but you know, it's not so bad now. And that's like, just, they just, it's just part of their workflow. 
but that can take some time. It takes sustained interest and effort and all the little dynamics and issues people eventually work through them. And I think at some point just be like, yeah, this is just what we do. Um, hopefully not all the time, but that's just like a simple way to, 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 to think about that. So I think that's important. And the last thing I want to point out that I thought was really interesting in the literature, they don't maybe make as big of a point about this as they should, but the sheer level of interventions at the district level that have occurred that have shown that these data visualization systems do make a positive change. So when you invest, you know, whatever, however many hundreds of thousand dollars in the data system, sometimes some of these districts who have actually caused like positive changes that they attribute to the data systems have made similar levels of investment through like hiring consultants, data coaches, all these like intensive university teams that come in and they work really closely with um, teacher groups on an ongoing basis. Like you can have a data coach that you meet with once a week or once every two weeks, or you can call whenever you want and you work through stuff and you ask questions and you learn and you inquire into what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And those systems cost a lot of money and, they're, and they use and they spend a lot of time with the teachers. And as you can imagine, year after year, there's turnover in school districts. So this doesn't go away. It doesn't just like start and you can do it for one year and you're done. This sometimes will go on for like two, three years. And those studies are the ones that show the positive growth in data-driven sort of decision-making having a positive impact on like turning schools around or whatever it is. It's not $300,000 in a data system and a half an hour training that appears to be very, very lopsided. It's betting heavily on the technological system and very little on the human side. Talked about throughout this conversation, how many ways the human side can break down and make it not work at all. So to say we're only going to invest in half of it and not the other half doesn't make any sense. I think this is your idea of the social practice. Yes, we, I, I had a conversation with a gentleman on a, a previous podcast where we talked about data standards, right? And we talked about how you need to invest in setting up the plumbing of your data properly. It's not glamorous. It's not fun. But you need to make sure that you're collecting your data and you've established those practices and you follow these protocols to make sure your data are quality. You need to do the same thing for people, right? You need to think about and consciously develop the practices and the protocols for the human side, whether, like you said, the data coaches, brilliant idea. The social practice, I was thinking back to being a PhD student and doing journal club. You know, and every month you'd get a journal article, sometimes every week you'd get a journal article, you'd have to read it and you'd show up and you would discuss the journal article. And frankly, reading research papers is hard and it's not fun, but doing it every week and every month you know, for the duration of your PhD, you get really good at being able to read a journal article and interpret it. And the discussions do start to become fun. And then you learn information sort of almost incidentally, you get better at it and then you get value out of it. And so your idea of creating that social practice that is established and encourages that cross-departmental discussion, as well as the just engagement with the data, everyone should do that right now. <laughs> No, I think it's really, I, I, I think a lot about that because there's, there's, a, there's also movements in, in teaching where they are asking teachers to like design their own like uh, interventions and like collect their own data on their own progress. And like people talk about that as if it were separate from this. Like there's like a background knowledge that you can begin to acquire about like how you can read data tables properly and like what might make something go up and down. And I don't, I don't know if districts will ever get this way because you need to be kind of like kind of like smart and nimble to like think about it this way. But you can imagine that practices around standardized tests could then lead to 
a department coming up with a practice they think might leverage something in that world, collecting some kind of intermediate data on an intervention that, okay, so we do see in fact that teachers or, or students are learning how to read primary sources better. <clears throat> They're becoming quicker at identifying the age of the documents, who wrote it, and a few of these things, that's important, and that shows up on a standardized test. So if we do this, and we show that in the, in the short term, this is going up, we've collected data for our, our, like, our evaluation, which is good, and we're thinking about it, and then also we can see if any of this registers next year on the test. I think that's an interesting way to connect like a, like a system of inquiry through it to give people like a real strong motivation. So they're not doing a bunch of one-off weird projects. They're thinking to themselves, well, my idea is that, because all, all teachers have ideas about how to improve learning. Like there's, I mean, unless they're really asleep at the wheel, but most of them have ideas. They think that increasing vocabulary, more time on task, whatever, they have all kinds of ideas, more interaction. <clears throat> they can run these things through and they can learn about them and they can use like collect information on them and look at charts. There's no reason they couldn't do that. And they can learn how to do that stuff in part through this kind of um, larger scale, like district or school level interventions or into data visualization, where they're like getting practice, figuring out the difference between different types of charts. And, and that's, that is the heart of data-driven decision-making. It's not just about kind of consulting the, the data stars and being like, let's go this way. It is about, okay, we know that this thing happened in the past. It's not going the direction that we want. We can hypothesize, and I loved what you said before, of use the data to hone in on some good guesses and eliminate some that turn out to not be true. So if you think it's absenteeism, look at your absenteeism data and see if it correlates with low test scores. And if it does, then you can move forward with acting on that. And if it doesn't, try something, you know, you look for something else. When you find something that looks promising in the data, the idea that you would then test it and go back to the data and say, do the data show an improvement or not? And if we don't see the needle moving, then we're going to try something else. And, and you're right to call out that false dichotomy that somehow taking those experimental actions is a separate, different project than trying to create you know, these big data systems. They should be one and the same. And the, the data education, that data literacy is going to support all of that from the how do we design our systems all the way down to being experimental and making those data-driven choices and modifications in how you actually do things. Spot on. I love it. I think it's like such a, like you can, I mean, so the places I worked are, there's a long ways from getting to there, but I, I can see like how interesting it would be to like look at the sixth, seventh, eighth grade, like pipeline, like, okay, if we're going to like really plan for some type of improvement. So when they get to ninth grade, the kids out of our school are distinguishable from other students in terms of their preparedness for reading or whatever it is. How would we do that in the next three years? I'd love to see like principals and teachers working together on that kind of problem because there is not, that is a very open-ended project <laughs> right now. There's got to be however many ways to get that done. And one thing they could do to orient themselves as they work through it is to use data and to use data visualizations to have a sense. Are they doing it right? Are the students learning? Are they attending to it? Is there a reason to think that it's grown from sixth to seventh to eighth grade at all to then suggest that in ninth grade they would be distinguishable? That would be awesome to find like statistically significant differences in students out of particular schools because of interventions that they decided to run. I think that's right, our big grand dream that someday that's where we'll get to where we really can see that. And I think that's true, not just of education, but all of our organizations, we have a reason that we exist. But there's something we're trying to change or make better and and to be able to see that the things that we do are actually moving the needle on those, even if they're really big, complex social challenges. 
that is definitely the dream. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. I have loved every second of it. If people wanted to connect with you or, or follow up with you, is there a place that they could find you? Yeah, so I don't have a personal website up yet, but I do run a tutoring business. So Eric at uh, Research Inspired Tutoring, believe it or not. So that's a you know, data-driven practices for tutoring that I use. And thanks for having me on Heart, Soul, and Data. It's been a pleasure, Alex. There was so much there. No wonder it took us almost an hour to get through all of that. One of the things I loved is that all three of the major interventions that Eric described actually have very little to do with the technology of data. And that's why this podcast is called Heart, Soul, and Data. It's not just data. It's not just technology. It's not just hardware that's going to make you successful with using data and creating a data-driven culture. In fact, it's much more about the people and how you approach it and how you design those technical systems to work with humans. So when he talks about his three solutions, right, applying data visualization principles, this isn't something that you can necessarily automate or leave to a robot unless your robot knows exactly what you're trying to achieve. You as a human needs need to say, what is it that matters to me? What is the insight that we're trying to call out? And sometimes you know that going into the visualization and you're able to say, I need to emphasize my school's line against the other schools. So I'm going to make my school's line a really bright color on this line graph and the other schools a, a, a gray color, which we talked about in the episode. But sometimes it actually comes out of exploring the data. So this is really an iterative process of trying something, looking at what, what it shows, and then figuring out how do you call the attention to that important insight in how you do the visualization. The second solution he talked about was motivation from the user's point of view. So this isn't again, necessarily about the particular platform you use, although there are platforms that are easier to use than others for the average person. But this is about saying what matters to the people that I'm going to put this data in front of. What is it that they can control and what challenges are the ones that they are trying to solve? And you put that local data in front of them so that they can engage and change the actions they take at a local level. And this concept of an open versus closed query, I think, is so critical. Are you throwing data up there where there's a quote-unquote right answer and you're just using it you know, from your pulpit to, to tell people what to do? Or are you saying, look, we're all on the same side? Similar um, to how Reverend Donna talked about, we're all on the same side. If you listen back to, I think this is episode one, she said, you got to stay on the same side saying, we're all trying to get here. We all want effective programs. We all want good classrooms. We all want high test scores. We all want, you know the best margin. So we're going to use the data to show where that's falling short. And together, we're going to brainstorm solutions. Together, we're going to figure out what is it that we could do differently and, and make a difference. And then that last pillar, that last intervention of investing in the human skills and systems. You could give somebody the most incredible car ever. And if they don't know how to drive, it's not going to get them to work any faster. Same thing with data systems. They can be the best data systems in the world. They can have the perfect information. They can have exactly the right visualizations. But if people don't feel comfortable using them, they don't have a way of interacting with them that is part of their normal workflow, they're not going to use them. And I loved Eric's idea of the social practice. I think if you work with more than one person, take this up right now. Figure out how you can work in Bagels and Data Wednesday, or whatever it is, so that you make the social practice of reviewing and interacting with data and discussing it and exploring it. 
If you're part of a bigger team, you know, how do you make sure that you put supports in place or that you have access to supports on how to use your analytics? We've talked time again about how important data literacy and data education is as a professional development. Invest in your people or convince your leadership to invest in you in how to actually engage effectively with data. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. And if you do happen to be at a place where you're trying to figure out how do I get started with data, I'm not sure what kind of data I have out there, I'm not sure what kind of data literacy skills I need to work with, those are all services that that my organization, Maracanos, does provide. So please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me at maracanos.com. We have a contact form there, or you can email me at hello at maracanos.com. And I'd love to chat with you about how we can help you set up a human-friendly data system that's going to help you really make a difference. So thank you and take care. You've been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Miraculous, an analytics, education, consulting, and data services company dedicated to helping nonprofits amplify their impact through data. Learn more at Maracanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.